0: 1 Corinthians 15, Paul begins to speak of that which is of first importance. Many things are, many doctrines are very important. All of this letter that he has written to this church has been of great importance, but there is one key thing that is of first importance. And I want to begin reading today in verse 20. Verse 20, let's hear now God's word. But in fact, Christ has been raised. From the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God. The Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And this is the word of the Lord, and we say, Amen. Indeed, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come now. to the preaching of your word, and we ask and pray, God, that you would bless this time. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, Father in heaven, would you speak to us now today? Help us to worship at the feet of the worthy Christ, the resurrected Lord and Savior. And may we find today, as your people, a great comfort and assurance and encouragement from this great act and from this great doctrine. Lead us, we pray, by your spirit, Lord, use the preaching of the word to edify and to sanctify your people, use the preaching of the word to transfer some from darkness to light, even now today. We ask these things in faith, we ask these things in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Well, the Lord has revealed his, his might, his omnipotent power all throughout the pages of scripture all throughout salvation history we have seen god putting his mighty acts his mighty power on display from the opening pages of the bible we see that through his sovereign speech through the utterance of sound god is able to create all things from no thing we see the mighty power of god on display over the mighty pharaoh As he lobs plague after plague upon this once greatly feared nation, decimating them, showing them to be no competitor to the Lord God omnipotent. We see his power and his might over the created realm when the Red Sea is is split in two and the waters are, are stored up in a heap on each side and God's people pass through the Red Sea unscathed. We see his mighty power revealed against all of the supposed gods of this world on the the, the battle that takes place on top of Mount Carmel, when the prophets of Baal are there and they're cutting themselves and crying out to their supposed God and no answer is found. And Elisha prays and God rains down fire from heaven, taking his sacrifice, roasting his sacrifice, and the prophets of Baal, the false prophets, are put to the sword. We see his almighty power on display when he preserves his three faithful servants in Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, as not a hair in their beards were singed, not even the smell of smoke was on their clothing as they were delivered from that fire. We see his mighty power on display in the lion's den, as he preserved his servant Daniel from that mighty fearful beast. We see his mighty power on display as he ordained the great fish to to grab hold of his wayward prophet, Jonah, and then we once again see that power on display as three days later Jonah is resurrected from the pit and brought forth to once again serve the Lord. But There is one great mighty act of God that outshines them all. One glorious event that has put on display the awesomeness of the sovereign authority and might of our God. Paul says that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. By the glorious might and strong arm of our God, Christ rose from the dead. And he was declared, Paul says, to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. This act of the resurrection is the watershed doctrine of the Christian faith. It is the pillar upon which all else stands or falls. If this event is untrue, then all of our faith comes tumbling down. Just up above our passage, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain, even here now. And if Christ has not been raised, he says, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if this is just a meeting of people trying to live a moral life that have, that have bought a lie and have no hope past this life, then Paul says that we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? Amen. Praise be to God. So how can the fact, the actual act and truth of the resurrection help you today to be a more faithful, stronger follower of Jesus Christ? How can the fact of the resurrection help you today face the trials and troubles of life that we experience in a fallen world, as Paul calls it, a twisted and crooked generation? And we have many Troubles that we face outside of us in our day. We are witnessing before our eyes the degrading of Western civilization. A culture that was founded on God's revelation and God's ethics and standards. We are seeing the moral rot of society all around us. We're experiencing the onslaught of feminism and LGBT indoctrination and egalitarianism making its way into the church of Jesus Christ, the professing church. We're witnessing the all-out corruption of public education, the confusion of the most basic identity of of humanity. If I am a man or I am a woman, we're seeing, it seems, daily scandals in politics. We've been discipled to not trust a word that comes out of those that we have elected to govern us. Wars and rumors of wars. But there is not just the external struggle. There is the internal struggle. Indwelling sin that remains, your ongoing moral struggle and at times moral failure, your desire of faithful obedience every day, but the real daily struggle to walk as we know we ought to walk, to be the man or woman that we know Christ is worthy of us being. What does any of this have to do with the resurrection? God the Spirit, through Paul the Apostle, I believe, has given the church here today ample ammunition to fend off our foes and to be built up as faithful servants of the Lord Jesus, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what's going on in Washington or Salem or Medford, regardless of the trials that we face, the difficulties that the church may be up against in our day, we have much cause and power to live as faithful servants of our Lord in whatever he brings to our plate. And so as we look in this text, notice from the beginning, as we just read, Paul says these words, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. Now now that that falling asleep is a euphemism in the scriptures for a Christian dying. It, It doesn't mean that our souls go to sleep to be woken up out of a state of unconsciousness, but it's a euphemism for the believers. When they have died, they've fallen asleep. And notice there is no ambiguity here with Paul when it comes to the resurrection of our Lord. There is no speculation or wonder. He declares this event to be a fact that is unquestioned. Christ has been raised. We see up in verse 6, he he mentions the, the witnesses of the resurrection, that That Christ appeared to Cephas, to Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers. Sorry, this is verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 15. More than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive today, as he writes this letter. So there were hundreds of witnesses that had seen the resurrected Jesus Christ walking on this earth, as Paul wrote this letter. So he declares it to be a matter of fact. And we must, Christian, we must declare the resurrection to be a matter of fact. There can be no wavering on this doctrine. Christianity stands or falls on that tomb, whether it's empty or filled. And if this be true, as we certainly confess that it is, then this reality, this teaching has many consequences. And I use the word consequence in the positive, it has many implications. If Christ has truly been raised from the dead, any man that can predict his own death and resurrection and then come true on those claims, as we just read, this is God, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, declaring Jesus to be the Son of God in power by raising him from the dead. And if this be true, then many other truths follow. Many other claims of God are vindicated, as seen in this text, if Christ is certainly raised. So I want to consider four today. And the first one is this. The fact of the resurrection should empower you, Christian, in your fight against sin. The fact of the resurrection should empower you in your fight against sin. Notice, I assume something here. Christians fight against sin. Amen? Amen that there is a battle that began the day you became a believer, that now your flesh had, a, had an enemy, the Spirit of God, within you. And your regenerated, rejuvenated, renovated spirit began to wage war against the flesh. And the fact of the resurrection empowers us in this battle. Let's see why. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All in Adam die. The reality is that all people, everywhere in this world, every man that has ever been born after the fall has been born in Adam. Now that little two-letter word is very important in Scripture, the word in. In. That is, you and I were born with Adam as our federal head or covenant head. He was our representative. And when you were born, you inherited something from Adam. It wasn't the sort of inheritance you would have hoped for from your first father. But you inherited Adam's sin, Adam's sin nature, and Adam's guilt. And you inherited Adam's broken relationship with God. What Adam did in the garden, in some mysterious way, we as well did in him. He represented all of humanity. And when he fell, we fell in him and with him. And he plunged this world into a curse. And so you and I were born from the beginning, from the first day, in bondage to sin. We do not become sinners the first time that we sin. Whenever we we try to Pinpoint that first sin in someone's life. If you've raised children, it's very early. It's very early. But even before that, born in Adam, and bondage to sin, and because of this reality, death for us all is certain. Death is a guarantee. So in Adam, Paul says, all die. But in Christ, all shall be made alive. Now what he's not saying is that all will be alive because of Christ, but all that are in Christ, all that know Christ, trust Christ, have believed upon Christ, have union with Christ, will be made alive. So how does this help us to fight against sin? Because Christ has conquered Adam's curse. Christ has conquered Adam's curse. Turn with me to to Romans chapter 6, please. Romans chapter 6. This is an incredible text. We're going to skim. It's a sermon in itself, easily multiple. Romans chapter 6 and verse 5. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, Romans 6, 5. If we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, Christian, also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. These are glorious words here, glorious words here. Paul declares at the end there that sin will not dominate you, Christian, because you are no longer under law, but you are under grace. Your relationship to God is not a legal relationship anymore. It is a relationship based upon promise. You are not under the law as a covenant or as a means of salvation, but you are under grace now as a covenant. Your obedience to God before Christ was legal obedience. It was obedience that you had to provide to have any chance of right standing with God. Perfection was demanded of you. But now under grace, under the new covenant, the covenant of grace, we offer to God evangelical obedience. That is obedience that is fueled by grace and is a response to grace. It does not merit salvation before God but it is a gracious and humble response to the salvation that we have been freely given. And through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, he has delivered his people from Adam's curse. He has broken the chains of dominion of sin that we were shackled in. And sin, beloved, no longer reigns over you anymore. You have been brought from death to life. So think with, with what he just said. The ruling power of sin in your life has been defeated. The ruling power of sin. Sin no longer masters you as a Christian. It no longer dominates you. Now you might be sitting there thinking, listen, pastor, that sounds wonderful, but there are days that sin surely seems to master me. It seems to dominate. It seems to have dominion. I seem to be under it. But notice what he says. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. There is a mind state that we must have. We must set our mind on things that are above, set our mind on the things of the spirit, not on the things of the flesh. So you must consider yourself. You must recognize yourself, you must understand that you are now dead to sin, that you are now alive in Christ Jesus. Because you have, he says, objectively been brought from death to life. This is the new condition that you find yourself in today if you are a believer. That domination, that sin once had, that mastery that sin once had has been defeated. But you must walk in Christ, beloved. You must put on the Lord Jesus Christ daily. You must turn from the flesh and turn to the things of the Spirit. You must walk as the new man that God declares that you are. As you have received Christ, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him. So that ruling, dominating power of sin at the resurrection of our Lord was defeated by Christ, but also the fleeting pleasure of sin has been subdued. Praise be to God for this reality. Maybe you are here and you are saved as later in life, and you had walked in unbelief for a time, and you had tasted the things of this world and lived for the flesh and all that that entails, and you became a believer and God delivered you from the bondage of your sin. He set you free From those things that mastered you. And maybe at some point you decided, I want a little taste. I I, I want to go back. Something drew you back. The flesh, the world, your enemy drew you back. Your flesh told you, you'll find fulfillment here. You'll find joy. here, You'll find delight in your sin. And so you took a taste. And praise be to God, it had a different flavor now. It didn't taste like it once did. You saw sin for what it is. You tasted the poison of it all. There might have been a fleeting moment, but your conscience condemned you. And you knew that you stood before God, grieving His Spirit. Your conscience was wounded. This is the grace of God. Amen? This is the blessing of God to change our hearts, change our affections. We may fall into grievous sins, but praise be to God, I do believe that for the child of God, the pleasure is now fleeting. The taste is different. We can see the destruction as well that sin brings by the power of His Spirit. And so, beloved, Paul tells us that we must present ourselves to God as one who has been brought to life. We must trust that God has had a decisive defeat over the cursed state of sin that we found ourselves in. That sin no longer has dominion over you, beloved, because you are not under law, but you are under grace. And so present yourself to God as one who has been brought to life. Walk in faith in this purchased reality for you. Put Adam to death and clothe yourself with Christ. Secondly, then, the fact of the resurrection removes the fear of death. The fact of the resurrection removes the fear of death. Back in our passage, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so we've seen that Christ in his resurrection conquered sin's dominion. The curse of Adam was defeated, was put to death, and we experience now new life in the second Adam, the greater redeemer. He conquered Adam's curse, and thus he also has conquered death. In Christ, Paul says, all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ first, and then at his coming, at his glorious appearance, all that belong to him. There's something in all of us that understands that death is wrong, right? That that death is unnatural. We we read the, the, the scientists today or what have you, and they'll tell us that death is just part of the cycle of life. And we understand post-fall that it is, but we also understand that for man it is a curse that is not natural to our original composition. We were not made originally to die. Death came because of the curse. But there is a natural instinct in all of us to avoid death at all costs, to do all that we can to preserve our lives. In much in our day, technological advancement has been made in an effort to delay death as long as we possibly can. When, when man has no hope, the unbelieving man, beyond this life, then he will do all that he can to escape the surety of death. You may have heard of the technology of cryonics which uses the technology of cryogenics, which is freezing things to an incredibly low temperature. And there's a process that you can, you can, you can engage in. It'll cost you $28,000, I believe. And this, this is when someone passes away. They take that person and give them CPR and breathe oxygen into their body and try to keep the organs oxygenated. The body is flown to a facility and it is pumped full of an antifreeze solution and placed into liquid nitrogen and slowly frozen to negative 320 degrees Fahrenheit. And the body resides there. This whole technology is built on hope. Vain hope, I would would call it. But it's built on hope that one day someone will discover a way to reanimate all these bodies, to bring them back from the dead. What is this but man's attempt to conquer death and to cause his own resurrection, to resurrect himself from the dead. But the fear and the reality and certainty of death is one thing that all of our technology cannot overcome. It is certain. And the unbelieving man knows that there is no hope beyond this life. He may not understand fully what is awaiting him, but he understands there is nothing after this that is good. But the Lord Jesus, praise be to God, has conquered death for his people. He is, we read, the first fruits of the death-conquering resurrection. Those words in John 11, one of the I am statements of our Lord that are familiar, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asked that question, do you believe this? Do you believe this, church? That though you die, you will live. That though your body, if if the Lord should tarry and not return, before your estate is over, you will die, but you will live. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul goes on in our, in our passage down towards the end of the chapter and he, and, he, and he says some words that are probably familiar to us, comforting words to us. Oh, death, where is your sting? You know that verse? But he, what he's doing there is he's actually quoting two Old Testament passages. Coincidentally, providentially. Uh, one of them is a text we've been looking at the last couple of weeks on Wednesday and it's taken from Isaiah 25. Listen to these words. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And he also then quotes Hosea thirteen fourteen, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Do you see that this resurrection hope is not something that happened started in the new covenant but the israelites had hope that somehow god would redeem them from death that yahweh would resurrect his own that the the grave that sheol would not hold them forever but its sting would be relieved and so for you christian death has been defeated death has been defeated how can the sting of death be removed if we still have to experience it. Because death is the door into the presence of Christ. Amen? Death, Paul says very plainly, is gain. It is a positive advancement for the Christian. Death is faith becoming sight. It is promise becoming fulfillment. It is hope becoming reality it is cessation of suffering and the ceasing of sin Christian you do not have to fear death its burden has been removed and it comes with hope hope that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord but also hope of a glorious resurrection that as Christ was raised you also will be raised Paul says that the dead in Christ shall rise. That is, again, if the Lord should tarry and we all find ourselves somewhere in the earth, our spirits, our souls having gone to glory, there will be a day when your soul and your body will be reunited. The Lord will come at his glorious second coming, and he will call the dead out of their graves. And you will be reunited soul and body. And you will spend eternity in a perfected version of this tent in glorified humanity. (laughs) Amen for all those that suffer physically. But that tells us something. That tells us that the body means something. The body matters. When God decided to make a being in the image of God, he made man. When God has decided to send angelic messengers from heaven to speak to men, they have come in the form of men. And when God decided to redeem fallen humanity, He sent His Son to take on a human nature so that He is forever the God-man. These bodies matter. We will dwell in them forever in a glorified state. So Christ, beloved, has conquered death so that you today can live without the fear of it. But not only has he conquered death, not only is to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, but Christ has also ordained the day of your death. So Whitfield says this, we are immortal until the work of Christ is done. Nothing can stop us until the day that Christ says, you are mine. No disease, no sickness, no bullets. No sword, there is no thing that can take you off of this rock until the moment that God has ordained that you will be in His presence. His resurrection, church, ensures your resurrection. And His resurrection ensures His glorious dominion and conquer of all things. Thirdly, the fact of the resurrection assures you of the current rule of Christ. The current rule of Christ. Look down with me now in verse 25. For he must rule until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. I love those three words. He must reign. He must reign. It is his rights and his privilege. He he acquired this glorious authority and kingship, his messianic rule, because of his resurrection, because of his faithfulness to his Father, because he perfectly obeyed the will of his Father, even to the point of death. He has been exalted. He has been given a name that is above all names, and he now rules in that place because he has earned that right. And so he must reign. And thus he reigns now, beloved. We are not waiting for Christ to someday take His place of authority and sovereign rulership. Jesus, as the God-man, today, right now, rules at the right hand of His Father in glorified humanity. He reigns over this world. He is now seated on His throne. And all things, as Paul says, all things have been put in subjection to Him. Praise be to God. Until, he says, until all his enemies are under his feet. Now here's where good men can can cross swords and, and, and we can debate. What does this rule look like? Is it a progressive defeat? That his enemies are slowly being footstooled through the agency of the church so that Christ will return to a victorious church that has won the world through the gospel? Or does Christ reign, but the putting all his enemies under his feet is one final massive defeat that happens in one grand glorious event? That may be a good discussion for this evening as we gather tonight. What is clear, beloved, what is clear is that because Christ has conquered Adam's curse, because he has conquered sin and death, he is now the exalted Messiah, seated on David's throne. And he must rule, and he will rule, until all of his enemies are finally and fully defeated. So how does this strengthen us today as Christians? I think it's obvious. (laughs) But it strengthens us, whether it is progressive or whether it is a decisive act, it strengthens us because the enemies of Christ in this age are footstooled by his gospel-preaching, disciple-making church. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not tanks and bombs. But we destroy lofty arguments and every thought that is raised against the knowledge of God. And thus the church of Jesus Christ is the army that King Jesus has enlisted to defeat his foes on this earth. The church then, beloved, will be successful. Whatever success looks like, to God, it may not look the same always for us, what we want success to be. But we do not have to wonder, because he must reign and he will reign until all enemies are vanquished. Though the world, we look around, and it is, it is true. We look around and we might ask the question at times, whose world is this? Who's in control? Things are falling apart morally. The church seems to have at times, the professing church, to have little influence on the culture, on the world, on, on, on the nation that we live in and the rest of the world in many, in many areas. But we look in the text and we see that objectively, the king reigns and the king wins. Amen? The king wins. And he sends out his troops into a battle that we know is already won. Imagine if those on D-Day storming the beach there knew without a shadow of a doubt that they were going into a battle that ultimately they would be victorious in. I I think many believe that. But we know, beloved, that we will win, that our God is a conquering God, that he will defeat all of his foes, and he has called us to simply take part in the process that will get him and us there. It may happen through success, it may happen through suffering, but ultimately the battle is the Lord's. Secondly, we can find strength here and hope here knowing that what you see with your eyes is not the whole picture. What you see with your eyes is not the whole picture. Christ must reign and he does reign. But The author of the Hebrews tells us that at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now we know because God tells us in his word that everything is in subjection to him. But at this present time, it has not yet been fully realized, fully visibly acknowledged. Or maybe I would say it has not been unleashed completely on this world. And so we turn on the news and we see that the president has put forth another ungodly decree celebrating some wicked agenda that your tax dollars have gone to support We see our elected officials celebrating the Holocaust of abortion, protecting the right of abortion at all costs. The state puts forth another tyrannical law that serves its own ends. We see another tragedy at another school or another church when innocent lives are taken. Wicked men and nations invading neighboring lands happy to kill civilians for their own vainglory. What you see is not the whole picture, church. The sovereign Christ must reign, and the sovereign Christ does reign. And His good purpose will be accomplished. His good ends will always be achieved. His justice, not man's justice, not the justice of our legal system, but His perfect justice will be achieved. His people that He is drawing will be brought into His kingdom. It doesn't matter when you share the gospel and someone laughs at you or scoffs or mocks. His sheep will hear his voice and they will come. When the shepherd calls, they will come into his sheepfold. He will build his church. Amen. And it may come, beloved, through suffering. It may come through loss. His church may be built and is being built today in the midst of the scorn and hatred of this world. You may be called to deny yourself in ways that will hurt. You may be cut off from family and friends as the sword of the gospel divides even the closest of loved ones. You may be called to lose all of your earthly goods that you have amassed on in this life. You may lose your reputation in the community, your good name. Slanderous lies may be said about you. You may be called a fool and a zealot and a bigot. You may be called to suffer much at the hands of this world, but Christ continues to reign. And we celebrate today the resurrection of our precious Lord. What seemed to be the greatest defeat Satan had won. The Messiah was crucified. He suffered mightily, but through his suffering... The greatest victory that has ever won was achieved as he rose from the dead. And we too have been invited to partake in the fellowship of his suffering that he might build his church. Even at the cross when it seemed that all was lost, he was raising up his own and he was storing up wrath for his enemies. Christ rules now. The fact of the resurrection ensures that Christ rules now and fourthly, the fact of the resurrection assures you of his final decisive conquer over all of his enemies. The question for Orthodox Christians is, 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 is how we get there. We can discuss how, but if is, is off the table. Will he win? Yes. How will we get there? We can debate that. Right. That's an intramural debate. Some see the church in the world getting worse and Christ comes back to rescue. Some see the, the church being more Successful in the gospel expands. Some are somewhere in between. We can debate those things. But the victory is the Lord's. That is not up for debate. Verse 24, Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. We do not yet see all things under Christ's feet, but beloved, a day will come. A day is coming. Whether it is tomorrow or another 2,000 years, a day is coming when we will see all things in subjection to him. His reign and his rule will be visible and it will be glorious and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He will rule, he says, the nations with a rod of iron. He will execute justice, and he will usher in his eternal kingdom. He will sit on his judgment throne, and the books will be laid open, and death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire, and all that do not have their name written in the book of life, all of the enemies of God will as well be cast into the lake of fire that burns. And the earth will be redeemed. It will be made new. And the church will be presented as that virgin bride to her husband. Our beloved's delight And the kingdom with all of the enemies of God vanquished, destroyed, will be handed over to the Father. Sin and death defeated, tears and pain wiped away, and we will dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. Amen. This is a certainty, church. God has proven this by raising his son from the dead. This is Paul's apologetic. Let me turn there. Acts 17. He's there on the, the uh, Areopagus, the Athenians, Mars Hill, and he's, he's speaking to the lofty philosophers of the day, and they love to hear new ideas, new religions, new philosophies. Verse 30, Acts 17, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is God's declaration to the world that judgment comes. There is redemption in his son, but there is wrath to come for all that do not know his son. I would be a fool today here on this Resurrection Sunday to not warn. There is wrath for all those that are outside of Christ. If you're here today and you are a first-time guest or you are a, you've been in a church every Lord's Day since you were born, if you are not trusting in Christ, in Christ alone as your Savior, if your confidence is in anything else but the finished work of the Lord Jesus, and friend, I warn you today that you are in Adam still. Thus you are represented by Adam's sin, Adam's guilt. And you, as Adam was, are at odds with God even today. And friend, I warn you that you are today storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when this mighty, glorious King will reveal Himself with His mighty angels. He will call His bride to Himself and He will vanquish those that have not obeyed the gospel. But this mighty king is also a gracious king. This mighty king is a king that is willing to rescue his own enemies. He comes to rebels, opposed to his will, opposed to his word. And he calls by his grace that you might come and be forgiven, set free, made new in him. And so the call goes out today as it did there on Mars Hill. God commands all people everywhere to repent. If you don't know Christ today, I urge you to flee from the wrath to come. But as Peter says, there is refreshment that comes when we repent from the presence of the Lord. And you today, friend, can find refuge in Christ. There is no refuge outside of Christ. There is no security. There is no safety apart from the blood of Jesus, friend. There is only an awful death and an awful judgment. But in Christ, there is refuge. And He is mighty to save any that would come today, would you call upon the name of the Lord this day that you might testify for the rest of your life on resurrection Sunday, the Lord Jesus resurrected my soul from death to life. Come today, friend. Come to Christ. Call upon the name of the Lord. Have your sin forgiven. Be set free. Little ones, little children, believe the gospel today. Believe in the Savior. Believe in the God of your fathers today. Children, Cast yourself upon this Christ. He is worthy. He is worthy. And Christian, He has and He is conquering your sin. He has conquered it objectively that you are now new and alive in Him. And He is conquering it subjectively as He daily washes you and cleanses you and makes you new. And He has removed the sting of death. He has removed death curse so you no longer have to fear death, beloved. He is defeating his enemies. And he will one day decisively rule over all that have set themselves up against God and his Christ. So what do you have to fear, Christian? What do we have to fear? The resurrection of Christ has assured these things to be true. So if this is true, as Paul says, it is a fact. Let us press on as Christ war church, the church militant. Let us press on doing those things that the world hates. Shocking things like raising godly offspring, teaching our children to command all that Christ has commanded, that they too might love the God of their fathers and worship Him, that we might make our homes hubs of worship and discipleship, that Christ might be lifted up in our homes daily, that men might be men, strong, bold, confident, courageous men, not bombastic fools. Thank you. But men that lead, men that sacrifice, men that give themselves for their wives and their children, men that are, are not frightened by a foolish culture that hates God, and women that are women, that are feminine and beautiful and meek and godly, that have not bought the lie that submission is, is, is bondage, but that trust the Lord and submit to their husbands and children that submit to their parents a church that is bold with the gospel, whether it's around the dinner table or in the public square or at the doctor's office or in the line at the grocery store, a church that is confident with the gospel, that Christ will build His church, that not even the gates of hell can oppose this Christ and His work. And may we stand firm, beloved, against the lies of this culture that is destroying this culture and so quickly infiltrating the church and may we stand beloved whatever the cost whatever it may cost us because we serve the resurrected king and he must reign and he is worthy amen let's pray oh god you are worthy oh christ you are worthy